Hi there, this is Kat. And this is Phoebe. Welcome to another installment of Feminine Chaos. Uh, so today, Phoebe, what are, we, what are we talking about? We're talking about how there's no greater privilege in this world than shattering your leg. Yeah, breaking your leg, lying on the floor of the jungle for five hours, um, and then having intense surgery um, that nearly results in an amputation. That's the greatest privilege of all, right? Yes. I mean, I know that like my biggest disadvantage in life is being not a very adventuresome person, never having done anything adventuresome enough to lead potentially to such a situation apart from like crossing the street, which you never know. But um, yeah, yeah. So we're talking, we're going to start this installment with a bit about good old privilege disclaimers, which um, seemed very like... um, When I was first noticing these, it seemed like a very sort of of the moment sort of tick in writing, like in women's writing, especially, but it's just exploded and they're everywhere. And um, I think we're going to talk a little bit about what it is and why. But first, um, do you want to introduce the specifics of the story with the broken leg? Okay, so our entree into this latest round of privilege disclaimer drama is related to Ashley Judd. She's an actress. Um, you might know her from such films as uh, Kiss the Girls or Double Jeopardy, which is one of my favorite 90s era crime movies. And um, Ashley Judd is having a, a little bit of a, a sort of a renaissance um, as an activist and a feminist. Um, she was prominent in speaking out um, related to like the Time's Up movement in Hollywood. And recently she had a horrible accident in the Congo. I'm not sure what she was doing there. I mean, maybe she was on some kind of like humanitarian trip, um, but she had this terrible accident and she shattered her leg. Um, She did an interview post-surgery from her hospital bed with uh, Nicholas Kristoff of the New York Times. And although she talked (laughs) somewhat for some sort of joke, Oh God. I mean, I mean, it's you know, terrible. It's, oh, it's, it's awful. I'm, I'm so glad that she still has her leg, but this interview was dominated not by the, the drama of, you know, the accident, um, but by Ashley Judd constantly iterating how privileged she was um, to have had this experience, you know, because had she not been a, white famous actress apparently um she would have shattered her leg much worse everybody who's not a movie star has shattered their leg and been left with gangrene and that's just how it is yeah i guess so i think Um, so what i think she was doing you know what this was this was the justine sacco joke but like earnest (laughs) Right. Um, she didn't. Yeah, she, she went to she Africa. Shattered, she shattered her leg, but she didn't get AIDS. So. <laughs> but it is. Is it not? Is it not the Justine Zach? It is. I'm sorry. It is. It's that. This is from this is from the Entertainment Weekly write up. Um, Judd continued. 
And the difference between a Congolese person and me is disaster insurance that allowed me 55 hours after my accident to get to an operating table in South Africa. She also stressed her own privilege by citing many Congolese people's lack of access to, quote, a simple pill to kill the pain when you've shattered a leg in four places and have nerve damage. Of course, Judd did not receive a simple pill to kill the pain, like, right off the bat. She lay on the forest floor for five hours until somebody could arrive to reset the bone, which apparently, like, they had to do right then and there um, uh-huh. while, she, while she bit on a stick. Um, and then, you know, then they carried her, they carried her out and she had to, like, ride a motorcycle, you know, in a sling um, for hours and hours until... Um, until she was able to, you know, to be transported to a hospital. Um, It just sounds like, you know, this is like an incredibly traumatic, horrible injury, you know, the kind that like most people will luckily never suffer in their lives, um, you know, to, to have this kind of accident. And it's remarkable that even in the thick of that you have the necessity of this privilege disclaimer mm-hmm. it is it is and I think we're gonna have to like explain it because I have a lot of like way too many thoughts about this and it's not just that it's Justine Sacco's joke rendered earnest and real I mean <laughs> part of it is like what was the interest for Nicholas Kristoff I guess it was the sort of the leveraging of her privilege right that she's like taking what could be a self-pitying and frankly like if you're ever allowed to be self-pitying I would think when you've shattered your leg maybe as a time but to take what could have been a self-pitying moment and turn it to like to others less fortunate right now Mm -hmm. so I'm going to give another example of this and then it sort of pivot to why I think this happened so BBC Women's Hour um it's just like their daily uh, women's radio program um, had an interview with a woman who um, just was giving her like a pseudonym or something. She's working full time. She has a baby and two other children. She's homeschooling the older children. She is working and because she likes her job, but also because she has to for money. Um, she's married, but you know, like she does not have the infinite money. Um, and, you know, they need her income as well. Mm-hmm. And she basically just has no time, right, because of the homeschooling and the working. And this is, you know, the pandemic and schools closed and all of this. She spends like half the interview, if not more, ex- just holding forth on how she knows how lucky she is, she knows she's lucky. She's so lucky. She's so lucky. She's also like on the verge of tears <laughs> during it. And there's just something about it where it's like, So you wonder, why is she saying this? Clearly, no, she's having a terrible time. This is objectively bad. It is not as bad as like being, you know, slowly tortured. You know, it is perhaps not as bad as having her leg shattered. But um, yeah, it's a bad situation. And I I think like, you know, they're covering it not because this woman has a sad, they're covering it because this is like systemically like a broadly a bad situation that a lot of people currently a lot of women specifically are in, right? Why is she doing this? Well, this kind of comes up in the program and it's basically that people um, will say and do say, do point out like how lucky she is because she has a job. They're not starving, you know? Um, She's not a frontline worker. She's working, she's able, she's privileged enough to work from home, even though had she 
been in a different type of career. It sounds like from what that podcast was, uh, the radio, whatever I listened to as the podcast was saying, um, there would be school. So essential workers or frontline workers, um, in England, I guess their children can go to school, but hers can't. So, you know, there are pluses and minuses. The whole thing was basically like, it could be worse. And the fact is, I mean, yes, in a certain sense, every situation could be worse, but like, what is this doing, you know, and what it's doing is it's minimizing the problem. So whether it's a broken leg, (laughs) really like gruesomely broken leg, or, you know, a sort of untenable situation during a terrible pandemic, (laughs) or whatever it is, you know, it's always this whole thing about it could be worse. And on the one hand, like that's presenting itself as like, it's, it's inclusive feminism, it's, you know, it's intersectional, it's like, no, no, this is just like minimizing horrible situations. And then the question that then arises for me is like, why? Why do this? And I mean, there's like this sort of like theoretical version, which is like it's anti-feminist, it's anti-women or something like that. But I think there's also just like a very practical reason, which is that if you don't do that, people get so mad. People like editors have to force or prompt or whatever a writer to put that in because commenters or people on Twitter, whatever, are furious, you know, like if you don't do that. So the the example that I'm thinking of here is a different um, an article that I found incredibly um, frustrating in the New York Times by a writer called uh, Dana Lorch and or Dana, I don't know, anyway, D-A-N-N-A. Uh, and it was called, um, this was recently, it was called, um, and we can, I guess, link to it, it's called Neglecting Yourself Doesn't Make You a Better Mother. And she's writing basically about how it's actually okay if you have children to bathe, to eat, um, and even, she. and then there's like this one passage that's just like um, bizarre, where she says, um, before, okay, it's a quote, Before my neighborhood sandbox in Brookline, Massachusetts became a potential infection zone, I learned fast that pulling up with the in the stroller, I can't speak, pulling up with the stroller in anything besides smudged black leggings would earn me glares from other moms. And it's like, okay, this is just in this woman's head, right? But what she does get at, okay, so this these problems seem like some mix of, I guess, privileged problems and just like this lady problems, but. She um, goes, she has this aside, even if it is essential, self-care comes easiest to, to those who are privileged. So, um, you know, single ah. mothers get a shout out, mothers with um, children who have disabilities get a shout out, like all these different sort of, um, and then, so I found this article just ridiculous because I'm sorry, speaking from the position of having a child. I still bathe, I still eat, it's fine. And like, the only reason I would think to feel guilty about it is somebody telling me that I shouldn't feel guilty about it because it's bizarre. You I still mean, it, eat, what, you monster? <laughs> I mean, it's like, it kind of would make sense if she was talking about like the weeks after giving birth, which are a little bit, you know, special. But like the idea that people with toddlers would have to like, I don't know, it's really a weird article. But anyway, but then somebody on Twitter, um, a mutual of mine on Twitter was saying something about like, you know, like, but to the article's credit, she mentions about the people who have it worse. And I like went on a whole like tangent thread on Twitter where I was like, 
no, like this is just like that's not a, that's not helpful. Like these things, well, it's, it's it's so it's, empty. Uh, it's like I mean, it's it's basically like a ritual where you say these magic right. words, you whisper the incantation that's supposed to protect yeah. you from being mm-hmm. attacked. Of course, it doesn't I mean, work. She made reference to like specific people and like examples, so it wasn't as it wasn't like a complete like so privilege disclaimers run the gamut sometimes it's this aside that's like i recognize i'm privileged and it's like very shallow other times it's like a few statistics are thrown in about you know like the women who have it harder or whatever you know or even an interview sometimes there's like a little bit of nod but there's always this thing where like the the story the reason it's a story is this one privileged or self-identified as privileged woman's experience um And it's like everything coming from a woman has to be two things. It has to be her personal story and it has to be making the world better for absolutely every woman. And I think that like, that's where it kind of goes wrong. And I never want to see another one of these disclaimers. (laughs) And I also wish I had trademarked privilege disclaimer because people keep talking about it and people are like, people keep like, reinventing the wheel with it in a way and it's like right. yeah let it be known everyone. you made this up privilege disclaimer is I mean, your... I for all i know somebody else did before and i didn't see it but i wish i would have trademarked it it's your offer <laughs> you wrote an entire book about it well i had um, i did do a whole chapter on it and yeah these things have not gone anywhere and it's just but the reason but i guess this was kind of like long-winded but the <laughs> the reason it exists is because people demand it and people say like at least some somebody um, acknowledge their privilege at least, you know, and if they don't do it, people get mad. People still get mad even if they do it. And sometimes it like, you know, prompts the idea to accuse somebody of privilege to begin with. Like this lady on the BBC Woman's Hour, I don't know how privileged people were going to think she was if she didn't keep saying it because it sounds like she isn't actually. But um, yeah. I mean, it strikes me that this is basically just a a very contemporary version of the expectation that women apologize for everything, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's it's this reflexive thing. And I think that the the privilege disclaimer has become reflexive, too. Um, But it's fascinating how, you know, so much of this writing is about something bad you know it's interesting because it's something bad something bad has happened and yet the expectation is that the woman writing this story it's about something bad must spend at least i don't know between 10 and 25 percent if not more of her essay or her interview talking about how it it's not that bad by comparison Yes. So it just confuses the narrative on top well, of everything does, else. If, if there's supposed to be a feminist point, which often in these cases there is, I'd say like virtually, well, maybe not with the broken leg, okay? That's maybe its own category. But certainly with like these complaints to do with like um, the pandemic and motherhood or, or like this woman who feels that she's um, judged if she takes a bath or whatever. Um, if there's a feminist point being made, and the author herself is not convinced it's a valid one or the editor isn't, what's the point? You know what I mean? And I I feel like why not just sort out that some things are valid as sort of political points and others aren't? I would say that the woman on BBC Woman's Hour, valid. The woman with the leggings issue, it's in her own head. So I would say on 
you know, like if the thing is valid, talk about the thing and you don't have to reference every other thing in the world to do so, you know, and like there's just something, but I, but you do have to because people get mad. But I mean, so like I wasn't annoyed at the woman who was interviewed for apologizing. I, I kind of get why she was doing that, but I'm just annoyed that there's that expectation. Now, as for the one who's talking about feeling judged if she doesn't wear um, dirty enough clothing or she doesn't have like a bit of a smell herself, <laughs> whatever the issue is, um, there I think that's just something that would be more interesting as like a personal essay, maybe even fiction in some capacity, but like it shouldn't have been linked to some sort of feminist thing because it's like this insistence that that's how it goes for women is just like, no, this is how it goes for her which is fine to write about, but the idea that it has to be like speaking for everybody is like you can tack on as many privileged disclaimers as you like, but the problem is specificity more than anything else. Um, and I think if you have a really like privileged non-problem that you want to write about, rather than trying to like anchor it to like the cause of, you know, the single mother with 10 jobs, maybe just like write about the thing if you think it's worthwhile to write about it, but like don't ah, oh, it just like there should just be more different types of stories told rather than like the stupid thing of these asides. It just drives me up the wall. That's a, yeah. It it also drives me up the wall because it's boring to read and it's predictable and it doesn't actually ultimately satisfy anybody. You know, it's this it's this please don't hit me thing um, mm -hmm. that I think, you know, mostly just puts into the heads of readers that maybe, well, maybe you deserve to be hit. You know, why are you so defensive about this off the bat? Um, the other thing that occurred to me about this, uh, it cheapens the... I don't know, or maybe what what I mean to say is that it's it's so intensely condescending to all of these imaginary people who have it worse off. You know, this idea of like, well, you know, if you're reading this and you, you know, you are in a worse position than I am, that you couldn't possibly relate to this because you're just so put upon oh, and you're yes. so miserable. Yeah. And I, what I wanted to kind of point to, I mean, well, partly it's like, could a, could a working class woman read, you know, um, uh, something by a more privileged or more elite woman and still relate to it in certain ways? I think absolutely. You know, like some yes. of these essays speak to something mm -hmm. universal, but the thing that really really jumped out at me was um, to return to the Ashley Judd thing. You know, she mentions that she, it was a reflection of her privilege that after she shattered her leg in the rainforest, um, she was able to pay someone to to take her on this motorcycle that she was able to like, you know, get a ride to the place where she received medical treatment. And all I could think was, you know, I know that the Congo is not the most developed country in the world. You know, there's a lot of struggle there and there's a lot of hardship. But I do think that if your average Congolese person shattered their leg in the rainforest, they would not be required to like drag themselves alone down the highway for a hundred miles to get to medical care. You know, there would still be, you know, if not a system in place than people there to help them. And this this imagined person who who basically, you know, dies on the side of the road so that Ashley Judd can highlight how lucky she was to to, you know, 
to have a broken leg that didn't kill her. It, there's something very slimy about that. Yes. Yes. Okay. So yes to all of that. Um, and yes to the sliminess of it. So one of the examples that I wrote about in the chapter where I discuss this um, was that somebody had written this personal essay about her her midlife crisis, divorce, sort of breakdown thing that she had. And it then there's this aside that's like, of course, if you are, you know, less privileged along all these axes, you don't have the privilege of having a midlife crisis. Where, and it's like, no, people have breakups, <laughs> like throughout society, people are fed up with their lives and kind of burn it all down. It's not like a privileged thing. It, and it just made it seem like having a breakup is something like unique to the privileged. And it seemed incredibly dehumanizing and just also just inaccurate. So this also came up, um, something else I wrote about with like critiques of the whole phenomenon, first world problems, where basically like people would sort of, you know, push back against that concept of like, you know, sort of like, or privileged problems, but at the time it would be called first world problems. Um, that, you know, people in the developing world, like, have a bad day, or like, their phone breaks, or whatever, you know, these things happen. And it's not like, it's not like to be a human being who has ups and downs is a privileged experience. And I think that's something that's only gotten worse in the years since where like, there's this very online idea of like, you know, like, like, if you are whichever marginalized categories, then, um, every minute of your day is spent being very upset and miserable. Yes. And like, you're hanging by a thread the entire time. There are no ups and downs. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just, you're just being dragged through the pit of despair. And it just, I think the people who affirm that <laughs> online, who are members of the groups in question, get a lot of sort of positive affirmation for doing so. I don't think it in any way relates to human beings and how they actually live. And I don't think it discounts the existence of bigotry to say that even if you are oppressed you have ups and downs you know and that like oh it's just it's so ridiculous um and yes also the um the Ashley Judd thing I mean that made me think of something else that came up when um, so I tweeted about the article in the times about the the leggings lady um and about how she does the like privilege disclaimer about like a single mother would have a heart or whatever and it was actually I think it was Matthew Iglesias replied um something about like linking to something from slate um about how um like sort of it's counterintuitive but um studies shown this article is actually by a single mother herself uh, that single mothers spend a lot less time doing chores because you know chores are like household chores or you know like for maybe maybe it's the demanding husband whatever it is you know um, mm -hmm. and that was interesting. And it was also the, like, and, but what the whole point of this was is that like, you know, just because you invoke some category as having it harder, doesn't mean that that category of people either does have it harder or has it harder in the specific way. And same again, like with the BBC woman's hour thing, like maybe the people who have certain types of jobs that allow them to send their children to school actually do not have it harder than she does and it just seems like part of this ritual is like part of it is just sort of like ignoring people's full humanity but it's also part of it is just like 
sometimes just wrong. <laughs> like it's just because of like, and it's not, and, and like what it is, is it's not actually exploring others' experiences. It's just nodding to them in that ceremonial way. Mm, this is such a good moment to segue into our next topic. If you are ready to do I that. I am ready to segue. Okay. Because sometimes it is in fact possible to go a little too far in the other direction. And instead of disclaiming your privilege too much to uh, over indulge your sense of being put upon and compare yourself to the most <laughs> disprivileged people in history, by which I mean, of course, comparing whatever unhappiness you're currently experiencing in your contemporary 2020s life to the Holocaust. That is a beautiful segue. I am very impressed. Thank you very much. Um, so for the uninitiated, this is where we are jumping into the topic of Gina Carano, actress, former MMA fighter, um, and now recent cancelee. So um, should I try to sum this one up? Yes. And I'm going okay. to give a, a, not a privilege, I'm going to give an ignorance disclaimer, which is that um, it's been a kind of hectic week and I have read like a little, little bit about this. And I'm not as up to date on it as possible. So I'm going to be learning a little bit on the go here. Yeah, I'm going to catch you up. I'm going to catch our listeners up. Um, so Gina Carano, you may know her as the actress who plays Cara Dune in The Mandalorian, which is the new Star Wars series on Disney+. Plus. Um, you know, full disclosure, kind of a nerd. I totally like the show. Um, I liked her on it. Is it a TV show? I thought it was a movie. Oh my god! Okay, no, it's a TV show. It's um, okay. it's it's really fun. It's like um, the episodes are super short, and it's very sort of steeped in um, like Star Wars. There, there are Easter eggs if you're like a big nerd about Star Wars. Like there, you'll recognize things there that are that are enjoyable. You know, the world building is a lot of fun. Um, so Karana was not the star of this show, but she was a recurring character. Um, she played this soldier, and um, the. Uh, trying to think of like how to kind of identify her place in like the Hollywood landscape. Um, Carano is sort of like Jason Statham um, or Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like she started out as a mixed martial arts fighter and now she acts and she's not like the world's best actor. She doesn't have a lot of depth or a lot of range, but what she does have is a beautiful face and really good screen presence. Um, and she's, built like a beautiful tank and she does her own stunts she's just like amazingly strong um so she's you know like a great action hero um she's also a little unusual for hollywood um apparently a trump supporter uh she seems you know not like hardcore trumpist um she hasn't been super vocal about it but she's has a social media presence that will remind you of like the sort of less sophisticated people that you might know from high school. Um, you know, if you're from like a, like a red area and, um, this is what got her in trouble. So if you were not paying attention to this, um, she posted 
on Instagram, um, or maybe it was TikTok. I'm not going to remember. I'm not going to remember which platform, so I'm just not going to, uh, I'll cut that out. She posted this little mini essay accompanied by this photo. It's famous from, um, I think, the 1930s in Germany of this this woman being chased through the street. It's really upsetting. Um, she wrote that you know, prior to the Holocaust, that the German government or the or the Nazis rather um, managed to convince you know the German people to turn against their Jewish neighbors, and she compared this to being persecuted for one's political beliefs in present day. So basically, super clumsy Holocaust analogy. She's suggesting that it's as bad to be a Republican in Hollywood now as it was to be a Jew in Germany in like the mid 1930s and very visual also right visually you know there was like, like there was like yeah. a little there was like a little unhappy face emoji in this you know just but to... I mean like the images like there's this is just sort of a fixture of social media that like whether you want to see it or not there's like holocaust pictures everywhere for all sorts yes. of reasons yes so I mean as, as this has been pointed out um it's really not unusual on social media for people to make these ridiculous Holocaust analogies. And her co-star Pedro Pascal actually made one of his own comparing um, a photo taken at an ICE detention center, um, I think in the early 2010s, to a photo of people standing in a concentration camp in like 1944. So, you know, it's, um, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't attacked for this because it's more acceptable to make that comparison, um, you know, in, on social media and like, well, I'm going to say that it's, well, well, I wouldn't be a fan particularly of either comparison. I mean, one seems a little bit more unhinged than the other. I'm just going to say like, I don't think, you know, like the, you know, child border separation is like a type. I mean, it's children, right? Like it's different from like, being you know chased out of hollywood for your beliefs i think right right even if so it, even if it's not ideal to do nazi analogies just generally for right i think that reasons. the you know what's yeah so that's that's true um you know i'm not sure that it really i don't necessarily think that it's like a great analogy but you know one probably more offensive than the other right, that's, that's of course the reason yeah. that it's offensive is not that it's anti-Semitic. It's not like, you know, anybody who makes these analogies is saying, and the Nazis were great and the Jews didn't have it that bad or they deserved it. The whole point is, you know, it's not downplaying the horrors of the Holocaust. Oh, I think it's okay. Yeah, we, we may disagree there, but go on. Ooh. Well, I know I think, you know, it's when when you do this, what you're doing is not downplaying the horrors of the Holocaust, but rather cheapening them by making a clumsy comparison. So I don't think of that as anti-Semitic. I think of it as giving too much weight to one's own problems in a way that mm -hmm. cheapens this historical atrocity. But I think that there's a, a, I mean, to me, that's a pretty clear line. So I think there's a little of both. I think it's not anti-Semitic in the sense of like, well, we, we get to that. <laughs> um, there is, you know, like sort of more straightforwardly anti-Semitic rhetoric, but I think there is something about it. Um, so I wrote about this, like, I think it was for the New Republic, like a number of years ago when it was like about where people were comparing um, Syrian refugees um, to Holocaust victims. And my objection then, and I, I still sort of, I guess, think this, I don't know, but was basically that like, 
part of what it does is it like it assumes that anti-Semitism is like done, a thing of the past, and that it's self-evident to somebody if you compare something to the Holocaust that it's like, you know, like we would never want to do anything bad to Jews now. So why would we want to do something bad to, you know, whichever group of people? And I thought that that was a little bit mistaken because like there's plenty of anti-Semitism still, um, not at the Nazi level, of course, but the idea that it's self-evident that Jews would be a group of people who nobody would want anything bad to happen to today just seems ridiculous. So that's part of it. But also, yeah, I think, um, I don't know that you can totally separate out the cheapening of a very specific atrocity against Jews um, with you know, being sort of dismissive of like Jewish history, I guess, um, because I think there is just like, and you get this in all kinds of settings, like like in schools where it'll be taught like that the Holocaust is just sort of a generic bad thing where people were mean or something like that. And, you know, that it's taught as this kind of like very like generic human rights thing. So as not specifically to talk about Jews and to make it more universal and specifically to make it that if students themselves are not big fans of Jews for whatever reasons, um, they're not, they can still learn the lesson kind of, I mean, this is maybe more a thing in Europe than in the States, but yeah, I think there's like a, a minimizing aspect. Now I think this gets though to the, like maybe the bigger point for today, which is like, does somebody who does a Holocaust analogy in a sort of, you know, haphazard way as if that's not redundant, um, do they intend something anti-Semitic in doing so? And yeah, I, that's where I, yeah, I also would have my doubts. Right. Yeah. So intent is, is a big part of this. Um, but I want to just finish up the, the, the summary here. Um, so Gina Carano, she already had kind of a target on her back. She had made a series of other social media posts that raised eyebrows that sort of, um, you know, triggered suspicions that she was a little too Trumpy and that that was bad. So those posts included, she'd written something about how Epstein didn't kill himself, which, you know, <laughs> that's I don't I'm not weighing in on this but it's not an uncommon sentiment to see online um she had been resistant to an ongoing pressure campaign to put her pronouns in her bio um and Who was she was exerting that pressure I'm curious um like you know, fans twi- or twitter twitter people yeah okay. um you know people who star wars has attracted like a very social justice contingent of people who see it as this like you know progressive lodestar and you know it's gonna like carry us forward (laughs) into the future um and that's a whole other conversation that's probably too nerdy to have right this minute um but so she made basically an r2d2 joke if you phoebe i don't know if you know but r2d2 is a droid he doesn't talk he just makes he makes beeping sounds um so she said her pronouns were beep bop and boop and people found this deeply upsetting um, and she had to formally apologize for, you know, for being glib about pronouns. So this is why why there were people saying like it on Twitter, I don't even remember who, something like that it's good she's being called out for anti-Semitism, but like she should have already been called out for transphobia. Is that what this refers that's to? What, that's what that was about. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I, didn't, yeah. I hadn't entirely followed why she was meant to be transphobic yeah i that that doesn't clear the bar for transphobia as far as i'm concerned um but it seems like she's kind of a like a little bit jordan 
Peterson-y maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then she had posted this meme um, that was a version of this image that also appeared on a wall in London that was a mural. And it's like an image of a bunch of um, old white men in suits um, playing Monopoly on the backs of these downtrodden naked workers. Um, And there's a a little caption that says, all we have to do is stand up um, because it would upset the game board, you know, this metaphorical game board. Um, So basically she had a target on her back already, you know, amongst the progressive fandom online who likes to, you know, get people canceled and fired for stepping out of line with, with progressive norms. So when she made this dumb Holocaust analogy post, um, it just triggered a fresh wave of animus that was already kind of in the ether and fired Gina Carano trended on Twitter. And then very shortly thereafter, Disney announced that she would not be returning for season three, you know, so they basically apparently fired her. Um, and what the, the the sort of weird cap to this, um, which I guess is maybe a happy ending for her is that she, um, was dropped by her agent, but then picked up by Ben Shapiro, <laughs> who apparently is making movies Not literally now. Picked I up by Ben Shapiro. Uh, yeah, no, he, he, he couldn't lift her. She's from, like, from the description, it sounds <laughs> Much taller than him. Picking up would be in the other direction, perhaps. <laughs> yes. Um, so, but she, but apparently he's going to make movies now, and he offered her a job in one. So, you know, this is being held up as evidence that she's not really canceled. I think like losing your your job on this very high profile like Star Wars property is. But I'm sure that it was devastating. Um, and I don't know. I mean, the the. Well, there's a bunch of things about this that bug me, but one of the main ones is that um, it it does seem like if a person is going to make like an overwrought and stupid Holocaust analogy and claim that they're being, you know, persecuted horribly for their political beliefs, for people on the left to react in the one way that made it seem like she kind of has a point, it just seems like sort of an unforced error. I wonder how these things play out. Like, if how... Like, if people on Twitter want somebody fired, are they just fired now for basically any job? Is that just kind of how it is? It kind of seems like it. Because <laughs> I feel like who, like, who is to blame? Is it, like, so, um, I mean, we can then get into, like, whether, you know, it was deserved or not or whatever. Um, but in general, you know, I think we're both in the, like, it's not good to fire people for their social media posts. But um, I think, yeah, I just wonder, like, in all of these cases, if people are allowed to have views and express them on social media. And that doesn't, you know, like, I feel like you should be able to do that without it meaning that you're getting somebody fired, you know? And I think it's different if people have like started a petition, like get so-and-so fired from such and such thing. That's like, that's not inadvertent. But now it just seems like if somebody's like that, that person sucks, <laughs> you know? Um, not to allude too much to somebody we will be talking about at a different occasion, but like with Alison Roman, like, you know, if people are like, <laughs> wow, she was rude or racist or whatever in that interview, is that the same as like tagging the times and being like, this you or <laughs> whatever? 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, in this case, like literally fire Gina Carano was trending. So I think that, you know, so they did want there was fired. there was certainly enough unhappiness there to, you know, to force people to pay attention. Um, and well, the image. OK, so I'm going to say that the image itself, the one not the Holocaust analogy one, um, but the men sitting around the table held up by the workers. Mm-hmm. Right. It is an anti-Semitic image, and I don't really know that there's a whole lot of point in, like, I think the most one can debate is, like, did she realize that, and how did she, and did she respond in a reasonable way once this was pointed out? Because this is, like, this has come up literally, like, recently um, with Jeremy Corbyn um, in Britain, right? Like, in terms of, I forget what there's here. There's some whole backstory. I know this is in the Barry Weiss newsletter about this, but basically, he got in trouble or some sort of association with this image also. Um, but images like this of like the Jew propped up by the people are like literally in anti-Semitic imagery since the 19th century. Um, this is just like a thing. And it's like, it doesn't mean that everybody knows it's a thing. I would say though, that in the image, those men are not merely white. Like I think they're pretty clearly caricatures of Jewish men. Yeah, I think I think reasonable people like or, well, you know, some less less educated people than yourself, including me, um, you know, do do not necessarily, you know, know that um, the sort of coded imagery that's in this piece, um, which is interesting because, as you mentioned, um, Barry Weiss wrote about this. Barry Weiss is one of the few people who, I think maybe the only person who, in the midst of everybody writing about Gina Carano getting fired, actually reached out to her um, and said, you know, what's the deal with you sharing this? Um, so mm. as far as I know, she shared this image back in December and nobody said anything about it. Um, Nobody took offense to it. And the version that she shared looks a little bit different from the one that was more um, aggressively and obviously anti-Semitic, the the one that was painted on this wall. Um, So Mm -hmm. there's that. I think that, you know, what's, what's happened in a lot of cases is that people are being kind of opportunistic. And I mean, I think there's like, I think there's also a question and this comes up all the time and I'm trying to be consistent with like, if it's a bigotry against a group I'm in or a bigotry against a different group, but like where, what are you supposed to do if it's pointed out to you that something you did was bigoted in a way that you maybe didn't know. And I guess the question is like, I mean, then it, it, it'll put you in a bind, right? Cause either you, you can take it like way too seriously and like react to like, somebody basically making up or a coded thing that like is really really obscure you know but also like sometimes things are like I'm gonna say the tropes like that you don't need like a particular education to necessarily be familiar with them I think it's one of these things some people are familiar with them some people aren't there are people sharing these online intending them to be anti-semitic who I promise are not all of them like scholars of things, you know what I no, mean? No, like, I'm sure that some, some of them are just, of you know, are just dumb anti-Semites. But what I'm saying is, right. I think a lot of people are claiming without cause that she, she knew exactly what she was doing. She says that she had no idea. I am inclined to believe that just because I didn't know that this was an anti-Semitic image, just looking mm-hmm. at it off the top of my head. And I'm not, you know, an uneducated person, but you know, I've not 
had the opportunity to learn the like about the imagery um, that's in this. And I don't think that your average, you know, American who's not anti-Semitic, you know, or like hanging around with anti-Semites would necessarily like have the sophistication to analyze this image and see everything that's kind of embedded in it, which is... A- so I feel like this is so unanswerable, be- or not unanswerable, but like it would need to be answered in some context other than a person who's currently under fire for this specific thing being asked, did you know? Because obviously she's going to say no. And I might believe her, like, I think it is plausible that she didn't. But like, I just genuinely do not have any idea what the average American slash the average American actor would be thinking there. And I guess the only things that I like, I'm torn, like my my brain is like, flying between these two ideas, one of which is like, yeah, I basically like, research these sorts of things very extensively in a way that's like, I mean, it was like, it was my work for like a number of years right so like i i get that so that makes me like completely unqualified to say at the same time like i also have spent a lot of time on social media on twitter and seen the way these sorts of images are used and like it's definitely it's not that you need to have been studying like 19th century france and you know like like media imagery from then to know about this like you also might know about this not you personally but like one might know about this from facebook from twitter um because these images do circulate in that context right like they do like there is such a thing as like you know online anti-semitism and it's not like some obscure thing that you have to be like a scholar to necessarily know it might be obscure though but that's different from it being like elite to know about it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that the average, I'm going to say, I don't think the average American with a PhD would know about these images more than the average, you know, like it's not something you just like generically study in school. Like I happen to do a PhD in like 19th century France, right? No, so I, like think, that- I think that there's a body of, of somewhat specialized knowledge and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're elite to have it. You could be a dumb racist and have it, you know? Um, and It's you specific, know- it's specific knowledge, yes. right? Like it's not, I don't like, I don't think that somebody who did their like degree like a Milton would like necessarily know you know what I mean like it's very it's like very specific to maybe like know a lot about it but I also think like because it floats around so much online I guess so this is where it gets back to like this particular story was she coming out of some sort of niche online or like very like sort of um, entrenched in some niche online where this is all floating around and if so what does that mean and if so does that mean she shouldn't have a job and also like if that is what conservatism kind of is at this point does that mean like no conservatives can have jobs if they've ever shared you know like ignorant memes and then like they're also ignorant left-wing memes and ah it's just a big mess right well i mean it's pointed out by by weiss in her piece that um there's an enormous amount of of much more recognizably overt anti-semitism um you know floating around on the left and you know people get a pass for that stuff um you know people like john cusack or um wasn't he pretty called out for this i mean i know he wasn't like but was he also actively in anything anymore? Like I remember him being very called out for being yeah, anti-Semitic. He's still, he's on still working. You know, Ice Cube. Really? Ice Cube said a bunch of stuff. You know, he's he's still working. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, it's you know, if if you're perceived as um, attacking Jews from the left, you know, then it's 
you know, at least in a, a lot of these spaces, it's like, well, you're doing it for noble reasons and they're privileged and, and that's, you know, fine. Um, whereas, you know, if it's from the right, obviously there's less tolerance for that. But there's also a question of the identity of the person. And I think that that comes up as well. Like this idea of like the whole punch up thing, right? Like that if you're white and you're saying something anti-Semitic, you know, I think left or right, you're going to get called out. I think if you are um, not white and you're saying something anti-Semitic, there's going to be this sort of like mm, on the left where it's like, that's not okay. But also like, you know, isn't the real racism what come like or anti-Semitism that which comes from white people. And this is all just sort of like a diversion. And it's actually about, you know, sort of whatever, like divide and conquer or something. Like, I don't know. I think there's something to that also that like, I've seen a lot of sort of like resistance to the idea of talking about like Farrakhan being anti-Semitic because like really should he be the one who signaled that whatever anyway mm. yeah so you were saying before you know is it trying to trying to know Karana's intent like was she hanging out in spaces online where images like this were circulating with the intent of being anti-Semitic I'm gonna go ahead and say that that seems very much not to be the case and I mean it's it's easy to look at her online presence you know um her her posts across a variety of platforms and conclude that she's just kind of basic. Um, you know, she like, I mean, it's <laughs> that, not, that is, I'm willing to accept that as a, as a hypothesis. Yeah. That, you know, not um, just the, the, not her, the political it. stuff she posts is, you know, is, is what it is. Um, but that like, even when she posts inspirational memes, it's very like, you know, the, the, kind of stuff that you see on like boomer facebook if you can't ha I, I she actually didn't post this but it's that you know if you can't handle me at my worst you don't deserve me at my best like girl power you well, know that kind yes. of stuff and that gets at a point that i thought was correct that barry weiss made about like the difference between and i think also there's a chait jonathan chait article about this that i have not actually looked at so closely but that, like the basically the difference between politicians like Corbyn, whatever, or just politicians in general, you know, being politically idiotic and like people who got their start in, you know, as like fighters and are now actors. Yeah. Being, you know, she, like Gina Carano, like got punched in the face for a living. And now she makes films where she punches people in the face for a living. And like, do we really care if her politics are uninformed or bad, like she's not I mean, in a yeah. position like That's about to... where I land. Like, I'm going to say that I think some of those posts, whether she meant them to be or not, were anti-Semitic. And I also like, don't find myself losing sleep over whether somebody who posted something anti-Semitic possibly like worst case scenario, meaning to is like in an action TV or like whatever. I don't even know how to call it, but like, I guess I don't really, I find that like hard to care because I don't really feel that it's, I mean, I guess the only reason I would say, like, if you step back, like, why it could matter would be, like, we've got Trump, right, who took his sort of, you know, basic, one might say, stardom and parlayed it into something else. But at the same time, he was also, you know, like, in business, and it was, like, this whole thing, right? So, like, maybe Schwarzenegger would be a better example. So, like, I guess sometimes people parlay this into something else, but, like, mostly they don't. Yeah, you know? yeah, and it doesn't really matter. And I guess, like, 
it just leads to such like I think there's something like this has come up also um so this would obviously be quite different politically but like where there was that I think we talked about this on the podcast some slate article about like oh god I'm forgetting her Gal Gadot um and Wonder Woman and how like is it really right that like somebody who was like in the Israeli army and like posted this thing and like 2016 or 1992 or whatever I don't know about you know like some war that Israel was in like is it really right for her to be in that scene about something like you know just seems sort of like Gal Gadot is one thing a character Gal Gadot plays is another these are like not the same and it seems like for consistency's sake I'm gonna say like yeah you know people are playing characters I think you know it doesn't necessarily matter. And certainly the threshold for it mattering should be like pretty high, you know? And I think if it's ambiguous, which it seems to be in this case, like, oh, I don't know. It just seems like, why does it matter? Like, I guess that's what I don't entirely Well, it's understand. odd too, this idea that, that, you know, somebody having bad politics casts a unique taint onto whatever they touch where, you know, ordinary bad opinions you know whether it's oh, i don't even know like you know somebody has weird ideas about what like a marriage should be like or they have terrible taste in food you know like the it's only your politics that somehow like seep into the groundwater of whatever project it is that you're involved with and you know it makes the whole thing suddenly bad and unwatchable i mean you know it's it makes me nostalgic for the time when not only did we not know what most celebrities politics were because there wasn't this ability to share and people tended not to talk about it openly um you know, unless they were an activist for some particular cause. Um, but when it was widely considered to be a thing that you didn't need to care about because they were just people with opinions and it had nothing well, to do with the job yeah, they were I mean, doing. It had nothing to do with the stakes, right? Like it didn't, like, I'm thinking like Kelsey Grammer, Frazier, right? He was always like said to be a Republican. And I don't think anybody really cared because the, and I still think people have kind of like a sort of like millennial semi-ironic affections for Frazier, right? That I don't know if that maybe has like, is a little passe at this point, but I think there used to be a sense that somebody could be a Republican and, you might disagree with that, but, you know, like, that was just, you know, their politics. Whereas I think now there's this idea that, like, if you're a Republican, you know, that is just like, you are a villain, you are evil, you are, you know, all of these things. And, you know, I think that's really a Trump era specific thing. And it may change if the Republican Party stops being associated so much with Trump. Um but I think there really is this idea that like that that having the politics of half the country, you know, um, or at least half the politically aware country um, is like it's just it's not different politics. It's something beyond that, that it's basically being a Nazi, you know? Yeah. Meanwhile, Scientologists are totally welcome in Hollywood and nobody seems to have any problem with that, even though that whole organization is incredibly weird i have listened to like some radio program about this ages ago and it sounded yeah sounded um 
weird. <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe the way forward unity is for Democrats and Republicans in Hollywood alike to coalesce around ostracizing the Scientologists. Ooh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> they probably wouldn't like that. And then John Travolta comes and... Yeah, John, John Travolta and Tom Cruise come to your home and I just talk to you really nicely until you change I'm your mind. just picturing like South Park episodes that involve these people um, <laughs> or rather imitate these people. I do not think they were participating. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I guess, yeah, I, my, my conclusion, if I have one as an incredibly uninformed person on this topic would be that, yeah, maybe it was anti-Semitic posts, but whatever in terms of like her being an actress in the star wars thing it doesn't really necessarily matter um, i think it's different if she was like i am now going to like take my chancellorship of germany and i'm invading poland next week and no i don't know like I, if there was some reason to think that there this gave her some kind of power i mean i think this is also like just this whole and we're going to get to this um at a later date but like this whole question of like cancel culture and the idea that the only way to criticize somebody and their views is to be like, they should not be employed Mm -hmm. um, or they should not be employed in anything at all prestigious or enviable or whatever it is. Like there are certain like relegate them to those bad jobs (laughs) or like, it doesn't even quite add up. Um, And that's where I feel like it should be. It should be possible to say those are bad posts without being like, and hashtag fire that person and that's where i would land on this i think they're bad posts i don't care if she has this job you know what i mean like i'm not yeah i'm not quite like gonna like i think you have to pick with these like i don't know that i'm gonna like make her my personal cause which gets at another kind of cancel culture thing where you're supposed to to show consistency like embrace the person you disagree with most and like her right but yeah I I do think it's silly for her to not have some acting job because she has kind of like um sort of idiot on Facebook politics yeah well I mean there's something you know untenable and distressing about the idea that anytime you consume media that you know everybody involved in it from the actors to the directors to the producers to like the sound guy and the camera guy all have to have good politics you know they have to share your politics um because i mean first of all that's impossible but it don't it's only going to make the issue of like people being siloed off into like their little bubbles that much worse um The thing that worries me a little bit, and there have been a lot of comparisons um, to like McCarthy era Hollywood kind of flying around in relation to this controversy. And I'm not sure that I agree that we're quite there yet, but what it, what does strike me, um, and this actually has less to do with the the post that set it all off than it did with, than it does with the pronouns thing, um, is that it's becoming very difficult, not just for a person to have mainstream Republican politics, you know, and and be vocal about it, but to opt out from talking about it. And um, this is like, you know, the, the pronouns thing, you know, the reason that she made this pronouns joke was because she was being pressured, you know, persistently. What if she just hadn't done it? Like, yeah, well, there was an enormous amount of pressure to do yeah. this, and 
you know, you can say, oh, she was flippant. She was disrespectful. But, you know, sometimes when people are pre being pressured to participate in a social ritual that they're not comfortable with, they make jokes to try yeah. to diffuse the situation. And I do think that there's something not great about the fact that she's being pressured to put her pronouns in her bio, which, you know, what that signals really is less... It's, it really has less to do with saying, like, what your gender identity is. For most people, they're not revealing anything that you can't tell just by looking at them about their gender identity. But putting pronouns in your bio does signal that you are a member of a certain political tribe. And pressuring somebody to do this and to basically signal their right-sidedness, like that they have the right politics or that they have politics that they don't necessarily have, um, you know, I, I do think that it's a little bit disturbing that somebody who's being pressured to do this, who doesn't want to do it for whatever reason, can't make a joke and be like, mm -hmm. ha ha, you know, no, I'm not going to do this. Like, oh, my pronouns are like beep and bop and boop. Um, and that, you know, people can can be like, OK, you know, let's stop pressuring her. Let's step back. Let's move on. Um, but rather that you know, there there is no opting out. In other workplaces, I think there isn't either. I think in other workplaces, you might be asked your pronouns, like, might, like, anecdotally, I understand it, that, like, that's not so strange at this point in some workplaces that that would be the case. So it almost seems like, but what's weird about it to me is that this is not, like, her job asking it of her. It's, like, I assume social media. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that's, it was sort like, of like a public pressure campaign. Yeah, I mean, I think that something about the whole social media angle, I just find very confusing, because it does seem like three very angry people on social media, or like bots or whatever can have just so much influence. And that's just like, I bet most people don't care and don't read transphobia into an absence of pronouns, because frankly, that's not what it means. Like people put in their bio, it's a limited number of you know characters and you put there what you want to put there and you can have your reasons or whatever they are you know and um I don't really get the sense that like any normal person reads an absence of pronouns in bio as significant because you just can't know anything about why that is you know what I mean like people who are trans and are not out might not have their pronouns in their bio because you know what I mean like it's just there's so many reasons it's just it would be ridiculous for somebody to like assume something. Yeah, I don't know. It just seems, oh, yeah, yeah. I I think there's something about, like, I think there is something to this about like the pressure, but I think that a lot of it does connect with this sort of social media thing of like, if you yell enough online, suddenly you are like the voice of the marginalized, which is like ridiculous and not even accurate. Like I bet most trans people could not care less if some somebody in Star Wars has their pronouns in a bio. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, on whose behalf is this even being done, right? Right. Well, I mean, I think partly in her, her co-star, Pedro Pascal, who is the star of The Mandalorian, kind of screwed things up for her because he put pronouns in his bio. And then it was like, well, why don't, you know, why isn't everybody but doing even this? So, I mean, I think it's fine for him to and for her not to. I think it's... Um, oh, it think, should be. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I mean, I think this is, I do think this is like this weird social media thing where like, if you speak with enough confidence about your righteousness, people just kind of like, including employers will like buy into it. And I think there's just like, so this came up when I was like researching and reporting on this thing um, that I wrote um, for the place I work for um, the signal about marginalization. 
Um, but like, yeah, just that basically just because people are anointing themselves, the voice of the marginalized takes on this life of its own and is, you know, um, like it's a power play that may or may not have anything to do with the people in question. And when I hear something like this about, I mean, without knowing the details of it, of a specific campaign to make a specific person put their pronouns in their bio, to me, that seems like I cannot imagine that this is like the main concern of trans people. And to me, this seems like the main concern of a bunch of people who want to be sort of um, bullying online, you know? Yeah, oh, I think that's absolutely true. You know, what's unfortunate is that it, they're capable of making enough noise, which in this case they were. Um, you know, it can make things very uncomfortable for, you know, even a, a high profile person, you know, can can be in this position of basically being asked to, I mean, it's not quite a loyalty oath, but it's sort of in the same wheelhouse, you know, signal signal that you are on the right side of this issue. Um, take part in this social ritual, if you're uncomfortable, um, that, you know, well, that's not allowed. You're not really allowed to opt out once it's been put on the table. The mm -hmm. other thing that's interesting to me is like, not that long ago, it would have been very distasteful to insinuate that somebody who looks like Gina Carano, you know, who is not shaped like your average Hollywood starlet, who is very, very powerfully built, you know, very strong, um, it, to insinuate that she might not be a woman would have been pretty offensive, mm. but we're in a weird That's place an right now. Twist. I had not thought about it like that. Um, but yeah, that too. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, oh, yeah. I mean, I also just like one more thing on that specifically, though, like, I think there is definitely a phenomenon on sort of like contrarian Twitter, where people will put or conservative Twitter, maybe where people will put like, like fake pronouns in their bio to specifically, you know, mock pronouns in bio. But what you're describing here seems like a different situation. If this was like specifically in response to people questing this, it seems a little bit weird to like interpret it as that she was just gratuitously mocking the whole, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. these seem like different things. Cause that is a phenomenon. Um, not one I have particularly strong thoughts about, but it is like out there and I've seen people like discuss it also like just, yeah. So that is a thing, but it doesn't sound like this is that thing. It sounds like, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Now this to me, sounds more akin to like somebody being repeatedly asked to, I don't, I don't know, like say grace or something and they're not religious and they get really uncomfortable and they try to make a joke to diffuse the tension and it just backfires. We may have to just examine her heart of hearts on all issues. <laughs> or alternately, answer. we could just not care. Or not, <laughs> is the practical approach. I will continue to appreciate Gina Carano's ability to do really impressive stunt work which is one of the things that's cool about her is that, you know, she's she is very powerfully built and she does look like she could credibly beat up a 200 pound man. Whereas, you know, most of the women you see in action roles, you really have to suspend your disbelief about that. So I will continue to appreciate her for the niche that she fills in the Hollywood landscape on that front and completely ignore her politics, which, frankly, I don't care about. Sounds good. <laughs> um, do you have anything else to say about this or are we done? 
I, I think we're done. I guess we just have to sit and hold our breath until the Ben Shapiro um, version of Star Wars appears. <laughs> that sounds horrible. All right. Well, thank you for... Oh, is it sort of episode is this? This is a public episode. So if you, if you would like to sign up for exclusive content, join us on Patreon for $5 a month or more, depending on what kind of perks you want, you will receive at least two subscriber-exclusive episodes a month. And uh, yeah, we would love to have your support. Yes, and if you already are supporting us, thank you very much. And this has been Feminine Chaos. It has. Bye. Bye.